Welcome to Talk on the Wild Side. I'm Rob Smith, and this is the podcast that gets you closer to nature than Theresa May running naughtily through a wheat field. I know, crazy times. In this bumper episode, we go fully native. That is to say, we go on the search for native oysters and the experts undertaking a major project to bring them back from the brink of oblivion in Essex. I just think they're, they're brilliant. No, they're, they're a species, but they're also often a habitat as well. And it, they're just a really fascinating little animal. You, they're not much to look at, but actually the more you dig down into them, the more interesting they become. Bisons and ponies and pigs. Oh my! Oh, and some longhorn cattle. We go wandering around the Bleen Woodland with the conservation grazing ranger to see how their team of quadrupedal ecosystem engineers are already starting to make a difference to biodiversity. They're going to be eating, feeding their dung, um, you know, their physique. All of these things help to shape the landscape around and, and hopefully give uh, other wildlife, um, you know, uh, an opportunity to flourish. And I've been to the land of contradictions, Dungeness, looking at the wetlands secreted in the middle of the UK's only desert to see how they're creating a series of new islands to make safe spaces for endangered seabirds to nest without being outfoxed by badgers or badgered by foxes. Yeah, badgers, they will go for a swim. There is evidence on RSPB reserves that they will swim through ditches and across water. They'll be after the nests. They, they love eggs, so they will, they'll be after the nests and whatever they can get hold of, really. All that, plus news of a super-rare mushroom turning up in Addington, David Attenborough turning up at Down, and a pair of adders winning the Kent Wildlife Trust Photo of the Year competition, which is a real turn-up. Well, let's start in the Bleen, the flagship conservation project that's being jointly run by Kent Wildlife Trust and the Wildwood Trust in a huge area of woodland near Canterbury, where in the summer of 2022, a small herd of bison were released into the woods, forming the first wild herd in the UK in around 12,000 years. But of course, bison form just one part of the project. It's really all about biodiversity and seeing what happens when you allow nature to actually take its course. And it's not just bison. There's longhorn cattle, Iron Age pigs and Exmoor ponies all doing their bit as well. I was lucky enough to join a bison ranger experience on a lovely autumnal day, along with a bunch of people from as far afield as Essex and Hereford, as well as more locally, to get a bit of an insight into the work that the rangers do. Our guide for the day was the lead bison and conservation grazing ranger, Tom Gibbs. So we are currently in West Bleen, um, which is part of the wider Bleen uh, woodland complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're in the sort of the western end of the site at the moment, at the beginning of the Wild Art Trail, um, as you can see from the signs behind us. Right, OK. And yep. looking at the Wild Art yes. Trail sign, we have, from the bottom up, we have uh, a pig, Iron Age pig. Iron Age pigs, that's right. Um, we have our English longhorn cattle above them. Exmoor ponies and then uh, the European bison uh, as well. The big boy at the top there. (laughs) And we're hoping on our walk that we're going to actually get the chance to see all of these. That's the hope, yeah. So we will be um, essentially doing what we would do uh, as a standard day of work, going out, looking for the animals, um, you know, going off trails, tracking them. um, And the idea is hopefully, yeah, to catch uh, the full set. That's the the dream. But 
it's not always easy, is it? Because yeah. how, how big an area are they actually wandering around in? So currently, uh, the, the conservation grazers, so that's our Exmoor ponies, Longhorn cattle and Iron Age pigs, they're in about 250 hectares. Um, the bison are going to be in a, a 200 hectare area eventually, but currently they're uh, confined to a 50 hectare area. Right, OK. And the bit that they're in, because they're, they're, they're not allowed to just wander where they want to, so they're Correct. within a sort of fenced off bit, aren't that's they? That's right, yeah. So they're in a, an enclosure, it's a, a double fence, line uh one to to prevent the public getting too close to the electric fence which is the one that is used as a deterrent for the bison um but they're very respectful of that we don't see any encounters really with that fence line okay so let's just talk a little bit about the point of them Mm -hmm. as these these big beasts wandering around in the woods what Mm -hmm. are they doing why have you introduced them so we're looking to them for, uh, you know, as ecosystem engineers, which means they shape the landscape around them. Um, we want to look for these nature-based solutions. So, you know, uh, tried and tested methods of woodland management, things like coppicing, clear felling, pollarding. Um, whilst, you know, there is a place for this kind of management, we're seeing those worrying trends with biodiversity losses um, still occurring. Um, you know, uh, lack of woodland, appropriate woodland management um, is one of the biggest drivers of, of species loss. So what we're looking for is these um, specific habit, um, behaviors of all these animals that are hopefully um, going to shape the landscape around them they're going to be eating feeding their dung um, you know their physique all of these things help to shape the landscape around and, and hopefully give uh, other wildlife um, you know uh, an opportunity to flourish so you've been wandering around the woods with them for mm-hmm. the last year or so since they were actually introduced mm-hmm. have you started actually seeing any of those changes happening Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, so the bison were the first to arrive. We've probably seen the biggest impacts from them, also because they're in that smaller area. Um, so that's been remarkable to see how quickly the, the impacts have been there. So we're talking about, you know, in some instances, you know, uh, maybe up to a, a, an acre of, um, uh, you know, places like Sweet Chestnut, heavily debarked you know stripping um uh, back that bark killing the trees off and creating this lovely stand in deadwood eating the foliage and as a result we're starting to see light filter down to the ground we're seeing things like heather now sprouting because of the opportunities given um from that that new sunlight uh we've seen things like uh, slow worms and and common lizards um you know basking in the sunlight that is is you know been afforded them as a result so um that's just you know a, a small example of what the bison are doing and and the ponies the cattle and the pigs are also um you know throughout the woods the rest of the public area we're seeing things being coppice you know mock coppice where normally we go in and fell from the ground the cattle are pulling things over snapping stems we've got the pigs rootling around disturbing the soil and allowing um seeds to germinate um and and hitting the bracken as well which is again can be quite uh, a dominant species so um yeah and even the ponies like to keep the uh, they crop you know very closely to the ground we've seen that a lot around the areas where we can publicly access um so, um, yeah, the impacts have been uh, amazing to see, and that's in such a short time uh, frame. So it's going to be really exciting to see how that progresses. All right, well, let's go wandering off into the woods then and see good. if we can actually yeah, see some of this stuff happening in action. <laughs> We're uh, on the tracks, hot on the tails of the uh, Exmoor ponies. Um, so, actually, we've just got some nice prints here. So again, we can see as we come over there, obviously a lot of sort of fairly recent tracks. Um, and what we're going to be doing is, is a welfare check on the animals, basically making sure that they're, they're happy, they're healthy. Um, we had a lot of rain yesterday and sort of high winds, so it's always good to get eyes on them to make sure that they, they're okay um, after a sort of unpredictable weather. Um, but this is, yeah, a day in the life of a ranger. We would be out here walking these woods, um, trying to read the signs and track the animals. Um, uh, to, to, to find them and like I said to then hopefully 
do some condition scoring, make sure they're okay. Oh, this is just fascinating. Um, I love the fact that we're just walking through here trying to track where the, the pony herd is. One of my fellow experiences, Cathy Howard. I love the fact that we're reintroducing bison into South East Wall. I think it's just very interesting. And the fact that we've got an opportunity to come and see it is just, yeah, for me, amazing. Really loving it. Have you been out on one of these safari type things before? No, I haven't. Um, this is quite a way for us, but um, I think we'll be back again. We'll come at a different time of the year. Yeah, we've, um, we've been looking forward to coming down here all year and we haven't been able to, so it's our first opportunity and what a lovely day for it. Yeah, it's glorious, isn't it, with the sunshine. So where have you come? You say you come a fair distance. Um, we've come from the Kent-Surrey border, so it's not, it's not too bad, about an hour and a half drive. And why are you bothered about coming out and taking a look? We're just passionate about wildlife, every aspect of it. The whole environment, the trees, insects, the bison, everything that lives here. And we're very worried about what's happening to the state of our world and this country at the moment. So, so it's kind of encouraging actually, isn't it? When you can, you can see they're doing some stuff. Exactly, yes. It, yeah, it, you get quite upset and worried about things and you come out here and see a success. It cheers you up a bit and realises it's not all doom and gloom. I'm Louise. Um, I'm the Supporter Experience Manager at Kent Wildlife Trust. So I um, look at a lot of the events and experiences we can do to get people here enjoying the woods. And hopefully today, if we're lucky, seeing some um, of the animals. Why is it important to get people out doing this kind of stuff? Um, I think it's a really important way to um, get everyone kind of involved with the project and um, experiencing exactly what we're doing here in the woods. And this is the, the best way that we've got so far, really, where we're actually kind of using all the tracking equipment to see if we can um, kind of see the animals in action in the woods. Um, just keep everyone really interested in what's going on you can really see you know the insights that you get from the bison ranger team on these kind of events will give you a whole different perspective and understanding of of what the project is here for why we're doing it because there's a real balance isn't there between making sure that you keep places wild and keep people out and at the same time letting people know that you're doing that and you have to let an amount of people in to see that it's going on. Yes, exactly. It's a very um, fine balance, as you say, between um, kind of, yeah, publicising what we're doing and wanting people to come and, and see it for themselves, but not having the reserve sort of overrun with so many people that actually it then has a negative effect on, on what we're doing as well. And what do you personally make of it? What are you getting out of today? I think it's brilliant. It's a really different way of looking at it. And um, for me, it feels really good that we're now at this stage where we can actually um, have the kind of bison rangers involved directly. It's that kind of next level. We've been doing lots of guided tours, which have been great. But it's really good to see that extra element where it's a little bit more involved. Um, It is that it's that flexibility to get the best from the event. So it's great to see different bits of the woods and the kind of excitement of knowing that you're on the on the track of the animals yeah, we, um, we might get to see one you never know yeah yeah i've got my fingers crossed <laughs> we've still got plenty of time 
<laughs> but we've seen woodland ants. We've seen loads and loads of different funguses fruiting all over the place as yes. well. I mean, it's it, it does feel quite wild yes it's always you can really see you know you just have to take a moment to look and you can see how alive the woods are so yes it, there are the the obvious things if you get to see ponies and, and bison but yeah as you say you can um see the life that's that's in the woods just by kind of as soon as you step foot in yeah. it really yeah. um and that's all really exciting as well and it's a beautiful time of year to to be exploring the woods oh, it, as well. it couldn't be a lovelier day could it? it's absolutely glorious <laughs> yeah perfect we've uh, got very lucky so tom <laughs> we found a pony we did at last long last they've been chasing us i think about for the last 20 minutes um we've come back up here onto the the art trail and lo and behold we've uh, we've managed to spot them camouflaged almost but you know we were saying if they weren't moving which they weren't to begin with it was only eddie's keen eyes um camouflaged perfectly silent and, and and knew that we were there but obviously you sometimes need that little bit of movement uh, a bit of a giveaway um but yeah we think there's six in there at the moment we probably won't follow them in to really dense vegetation like this we don't want to spook them uh-huh. um but normally we'd give them a little bit of space and we can possibly follow in to try and yeah try and see the rest so what kind of ponies are these so these are Exmoor ponies mm-hmm. uh, from the moor, Exmoor uh, down in Devon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were born, um, you know, wild on, on the moor. So these are real sort of pedigree animals um, and, and used very hardy. You know, that's one of the reasons they were chosen. Uh, they like, um, you know, they can be outdoors all year round. They can find food for themselves really well. Um, so they're quite low, sort of minimal input and, and maintenance, which is great. That's what we, we want. We want them to be out all, all year round. And they're part of the mix, aren't they, mm-hmm. that you've got, the ponies, pigs, yep. uh, as so, well as the bison yep. and the longhorn That's cattle. right, yes. So the ponies are interesting. They tend to be, rather than um, sort of pushing through the dense understory and vegetation, which they are doing a little bit of that here. You can see some trampling of the bracken here as well, which is great. But they often follow the more um, sort of set up... Um, corridors created by those bigger animals so your, your bison uh, your cattle and also the way that they um they they feed uh, they are a bit like a a lawnmower they closely crop the vegetation whereas um cattle will tend to sort of rip with their tongue which creates this sort of mosaic of heights within the we call it the sward the height of the vegetation mm-hmm. the ponies crop it a lot closer to the ground so mm. it's a lot more sort of manicured so when we go along the edge of this art track you can see where they've managed to keep things much more lower to the ground and then as a result you see lots more of these sort of flowers coming through um which obviously wouldn't be able to compete with the bracken and the, the taller grasses and and sort of willow that we can see in front of us so. okay so the, the point of having there it's like different sized lawnmowers in different yeah, parts exactly. of the, the yeah they're the all doing yeah carrying out different um behaviors uh different techniques and each one of those techniques will benefit different species and as we're looking at them here i mean i'm looking at them and they're how far away what 20 feet 30 feet yeah, no distance yeah. and it, even though i'm looking at them they're really hard to see yeah and and they're moving and uh you know you really got to tune in your senses you know you've got one poking its head through here um it's almost like they disappear and they blur in so effortlessly um yeah we we, we just stood uh i was explaining a bit about the the, the feeding regime and how they they closely crop the the deck and eddie's all of a sudden said oh there's there's one five meters away just over there um and we were just oblivious up until that point um so no it's it's fantastic and like i say you can see how, how well adapted they are to this sort of uh location um and uh yeah it's lovely to see them actually together they do often split off into subgroups so to see them all together at the moment is, uh-huh. is brilliant 
And they're all lads, aren't they? They are. They're all stallions. Um, so in theory, they could all breed. Um, one of the reasons that we don't have females on, on site here is we want to be able to control their numbers right. to mimic uh, the number of bison. They're the only breeding animals on site. So as they naturally grow the, the herd size of the bison, we will mimic that by introducing other, other animals um, within the cattle ponies and, and pigs and and ponies don't they don't fight amongst each other if you have uh, a, a bunch of males together they do yeah no there's definitely a hierarchy and and quite literally a pecking order in t- at right. times they'll nibble at each other um they sometimes kick out at each other if they're particularly frustrated and that's why you see these subgroups sometimes forming um certain individuals closer to one another uh, for safety they they tend to reconvene about um sort of in the evening i think for, for for safety during the night but during the day they will break off into these little groups so there's definitely a hierarchy and they do get a bit agitated with each other <laughs> that's for sure now among our group was a lady called chris matthews who among other things is involved in a charity called thrive that helps disadvantaged and disabled people through therapeutic gardening and she traveled all the way from hereford to be here it's it's very interesting seeing the distinction between um, forests and, and conservation and woodland areas compared to the scale you get in gardening so gardening has some advantages in that it's small scale it's usually small scale nature so it's a one way of making nature accessible to a lot of people uh, whereas forests sometimes can be a bit frightening for some people on the other hand, the boundaries between gardening and nature conservation are quite blurred, I think, these days, because many people are gardening more for nature. Uh, and conservation is, there's more intervention in conservation areas and woodland areas. And do you come from a kind of a, a nature conservancy background yourself? <laughs> no, not at all. I started off with a PhD in geophysics, so I came, <laughs> I came from a sort of research basis. Um, but I, w- I was always quite interested in nature and being out in nature. And um, I got in, I did an MA in coaching and mentoring practice looking at basically how the environment influences adult change and development. Um, and that led on to, uh, I was working in telecoms at the time in fact, and I left telecoms and did some volunteering for a charity that did um, uh, children, experiential education for children. So a bit of forest school work and a bit of um, historical reenactment type stuff. Uh, so I like I like the bigger scale, larger scale. And I've just um, bought some land where we're hoping to re-establish some woodland. Oh right, okay. So understanding the management of the woodland and also understanding how you can manage it for nature and for things like the um, hazel dormouse and things is going to be very interesting. How big a piece of land are we talking? Uh, the bit that we're going to wood isn't that large. It's probably about an acre or so. Uh-huh. So it's just getting that that balance. But the nice thing with coppicing is you have that ability to get a variety of um, canopy heights and a variety of tree species in a relatively small area. And if you'd been doing this 10 years ago, would your (laughs) ideas of of what you're doing with the woodland have been very different? Um, I think probably I wouldn't have seen woodland so much as being part of a garden setting. Um, Although my mum was always very into sort of wildlife gardening, though I think that might have been just because she didn't spend that much time gardening. (laughs) (laughs) So given all of that, what do you make of of Kent Wildlife Trust's kind of big philosophy then of wilding and and rewilding? I think it's it's something we desperately need need in this country. We need to work out how we can live in a nature-rich environment. And that means how we can bring nature both into our local environment, but also have these bigger areas where we're sort of the visitors going into them. Yeah. And it's designed there more for a wider scale area for the animals themselves. 
And it has to be said that on a day like today, and it is an absolutely <laughs> glorious day, isn't it? It is. <laughs> you couldn't find anywhere better. No, it's lovely. And we've seen the ponies, and uh, I don't know if we'll get to see the bison or if they're off in the middle of the area, but uh, it's a gorgeous day to be out in the woodland at the moment. It's really nice. Then, before we knew it, after a great two and a half hours of tramping through the woodland, we were back where we started. We did get to see some longhorn cattle browsing in a stand of coppiced sweet chestnut on the way, but sadly neither an Iron Age pig or indeed a bison. They were just hiding too deep in their woodlands to be seen. I mean, Tom, that was great. We've seen a lot of ponies. We did, yeah. I think we saw, we may have seen them twice actually in the end, didn't we? Um, we struggled to begin with, but it's fantastic that uh, it's often the way at the end of the day you've had a long walk and they just welcome you back to the cottage and you sort of think, we could have saved a lot of time there. But uh, no, it's part of the fun. You don't know what yeah. you're going to find. I yeah. think that's the excitement. So we didn't get to see the uh, the bison, unfortunately, because no. they were like right deep in the that's middle of right. the woods. But I have to say that, you know, it's one of these things that just walking around the woods here, mm. it's so beautiful. Yep. This time of year, we've still got Stunning. some leaves on the trees yeah. but they're properly on the turn it's just a lovely place to be beautiful i mean it's the best kind of office you could ever have and like you said on a day like today better than yesterday where it was an absolute washout <laughs> it has to be said but clear blue skies all day like you said those lovely autumnal colors um and just seeing you know the animals it's it's um you know it's like a safari you don't know what you're going to see and that's mm. part of the appeal i think um these are wild animals you know they uh they're not there on demand um and nor that should they be so it's it's about learning how to interact with those animals in these wild spaces and that's part of of it is you just don't know uh, when you're going to see them now one of the things that i have seen an awful lot of as we were going around was uh, loads of mushrooms at this time of year yes. funguses all over the place yeah um so obviously it's the perfect time of year it's really damp conditions the leaf litter is nice and thick so it's the perfect um you know sort of appetite for those fruiting bodies to come through i think we've seen loads of things we've seen magpie ink caps we've seen fly agaric rust gills um and that's just you know off the top of our head so it's fantastic they are everywhere and actually one of the interesting things is that we often see like little bite marks out of them so that's right. something that i'm quite intrigued to see what uh, in particular is feeding on them we actually saw um the calf the other day eating what we think was some rust gills um over in the uh, the bison enclosure so okay. that's quite exciting that's the first so it's interesting to see whether that's a a trend is or that, whether is just that a... one of the things you'll be concerned about because obviously eating the wrong kind of mushroom right, can be very yeah. bad so um we actually in terms of the bison we have witnessed them eating what would normally be sort of toxic to other livestock um so eating things like you um you know uh even bracken um in high enough concentrations so the fungi i wonder if they're just learning and it's a little bit it's, it's not too damaging mm-hmm. um obviously they're quite uh they've got quite tough constitutions but um yeah it is one of those I, I don't know if it's a trend yet or whether it's a one-off it's the only time we've ever seen that but like i said elsewhere in the woods i definitely have seen these uh you know these almost like teeth mark or mouth mm-hmm. you know shaped sizes uh, somebody's obviously had a bite out All of them right, so okay. interesting to see who or what is uh yeah is having a try now obviously part of the reason why we've come out today is because it is a safari and we've had you know people coming from essex and people yeah, coming from hereford and you know quite yeah. a, a long distance to come in mm-hmm. you're really keen to let people in to see what's happening here but respectfully uh, yeah 100% I think um, so one of the things with a project like this with the animals that we have on site it's about reconnecting with with wild spaces wild animals we're not used to that in the UK um, you know we, we still have our deer populations and whatnot but you know big herbivores like this it's it's a learning curve and obviously the more people are exposed to that the more they understand the relationship um, the better the coexistence is going to be and mm. you know we, it, looking to the future we really need um, you know uh, these animals to help you know 
give nature the best opportunity in an un- uncertain future so by learning how to behave around these animals it, it reduces that um you know the opportunity for for conflict um but also it, you know it gives people um you know for their mental health um being able to come out and see these animals, it's, it's such a great opportunity and as we've seen people coming from far afield so it's a it's a real privilege to be able to show them around yeah it's been great well tom thanks ever so much for your time it's Pleasure. been brilliant next time we might see a bison <laughs> I'll, I'll try to guarantee you that but yeah i have to have a word with them <laughs> thank you Tom Gibbs, the lead bison and conservation grazing ranger there. And if you want to go on a safari or a ranger experience into the Bleen, then just go to the Kent Wildlife Trust website, kentwildlifetrust.org.uk, and take a look at the What's On page. You can book it from there. And if you want to find out more about Thrive, which is the, uh, the social and therapeutic horticulture charity that was mentioned, well, you can find them at thrive.org.uk. <laughs> Now, this podcast is being first released in November. And since there is an R in the month, if you choose, you can eat oysters. And if you do so choose, then the chances are that you will eat a Pacific rock oyster rather than a native British one. And that's because over the last couple of centuries, their numbers have plummeted catastrophically by over 95%. Ever since Roman times, British native oysters have been famous for their unique meaty texture and flavour. In 1864, no fewer than 700 million oysters were eaten in London alone. They were a staple of the working man's diet, in fact. But by 1964, that number had dropped to just 3 million, and the oyster beds around the UK were damaged and depleted and often destroyed by overfishing, pollution and disease. Well, there are a few places where the traditional native oyster fisheries have managed to cling on. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to one of them at Brightlingsea on the banks of the River Blackwater in Essex to find out more about Enori, which is the Essex Native Oyster Restoration Initiative. The Blackwater forms part of the UK's largest marine conservation zone, along with the Crouch, the Roach and the Colm, and it covers some 284 square kilometres of estuary. It's a huge area and the ideal spot to try and boost the prospects for our native oysters. I met up with Matt Utley from the Blue Marine Foundation at Essex Wildlife Trust Wigborough site to ask him why we were standing on a huge pile of scallop shells that had been bought from restaurants in London. So here the shell is what we call weathering. Mm-hmm. So it, it sits for approximately 12 months um, just to ensure that any residual meat that's on them sort of breaks down. There's no risk of invasive species. Sort so of these have come from them. the restaurant trade, haven't they? They come from restaurants, yep. So it's a byproduct of the restaurant industry. You can imagine when, when you had um, oysters in the natural environment, they would they would die there, the shells would remain, and new oysters come and settle on those shells. Right. As we remove them and eat them, shells then go in the bin, and there's nowhere for those oysters to then come and settle and live. So we're putting all of this shell back. We've got about 40 tonnes here now. Um, this year we put over 200 tonnes of shell in, along with 600 tonnes of gravel. Mm-hmm. Um, this We call it colch, this big sort of um, new reef-like structure okay. um, for all the oyster larvae that's floating around in the water to come and come and settle on and grow into that next next generation of oysters. So it's literally creating a new kind of a seed bed for the, the next generation of native oysters to grow on, right? Yep, okay. Exactly so right. how long have you actually been doing that for? 
So Anori started active seabed restoration in 2019, mm -hmm. um, sort of a small pilot scale in that first year. Um, and then we've done some, some scale-up work since then. Um, each year since then, we've, we've scaled that, that work up and tried to do a bigger, bigger and better area, learn each year and try and improve on what we've done. And is it starting to have an impact? Are you seeing more native oysters in the area? Yep, so we've been, been monitoring it each year, um, going out and looking at um, how many oysters are settling on the material we're putting down. Um, and we're seeing that year-on-year -year recruitment. But what we're also doing is using what we call spat collectors and we've got some of those in what, the field what, here. Sorry, what collectors? So spat collectors. A baby oyster when it first settles is called a spat. Um, <laughs> okay. And the, these sort of frames that we add into the water, they're, they're lime-coated plastic discs uh -huh. um, and baby oysters, a spat will settle on those discs and it means we can really easily lift them up and check how, how many oysters are settling and how well they're doing without having to disturb the new new material we've put down right okay and so and and how, how long does it take for a, a spat to become an oyster then i mean once it's settled out it's immediately called a spat and then very very quickly it's it's an oyster juvenile oyster then it, how long does an oyster live for i've got no idea um, so an oyster left alone in healthy conditions on its own will live up to 20 years uh, wow right, um, okay. but they're, they're very slow growing you know okay. it, it would sort of in that time just maybe be slightly bigger than your hand um it would it would only reach what we call marketable size so um about uh, 60 millimeters in three or four years you know it takes them a long time to grow right okay but a fully grown one will be as big as your hand so that, that's quite enough. that's, that's yeah. a big oyster isn't it and that's that's a meal in itself yeah you don't often see them that big anymore unfortunately you know it's um if, if they're harvested for for food then that sort of three four five year period is more than enough, you wouldn't want one the size of your hand on your dinner plate. But the place where you're setting up the, the, the new uh, culch um, yes. for them to, to grow on, that's in a conservation area, isn't it? Yes. So that's not being fished on at all. They are going to be left alone for 20-odd years. That, that's the plan, yeah. So it's quite a unique area we're working in here. So we're working in a marine conservation zone, which is designated for native oysters, which means it's, it's protected for them. People can't come and fish them. Like I said, we're working with the oyster industry. There is still a fishery here mm -hmm. on small private beds around the marine conservation zone. They're still actively working that ground and, and growing these oysters there, managing the stocks and looking after them. Our long-term ambition is that there will be a small-scale sustainable fishery within the wider area, but not on the exact area we're creating this new habitat. That will always be, be closed as a voluntary no-take zone. You know, We're working with the oystermen to ensure these stocks increase and spread across the whole marine conservation zone so native oysters are they significantly different to um the the, the rock oysters because am i right in thinking that most oysters you'll actually buy for food in the uk at the moment are rock oysters yes yeah exactly so you've got the native oyster uh, which is a european flat oyster and a rock oyster which is a pacific oyster now, i've actually got two examples of both of these here so you can quite clearly see they look completely different they really do don't um so the native oyster european flat oyster has one side that's completely flat and one that's curved whereas the pacific oyster or rock oyster is very bumpy ridgy curvy wavy um and a bit less uniform in shape you know a native oyster will tend to always look like this whereas the mm -hmm. the rock oyster you get quite a big difference in size and shape and sort of texture and color and is there an issue with um, sort of outcompeting 
the native oyster with the, with the rock oysters because we know that you know signal crayfish are a massive issue in freshwater lakes and those kind of things is is there a problem with having lots of rock oysters having been introduced into the uk so it's a, a little bit different with oysters um so they don't directly um compete with each other in the same sense that crayfish would but um they're occupying slightly different spatial niches as well the native oysters primarily subtitle um pacific oyster is more intertidal okay um, so so the native oyster likes to stay underwater all the time yep. and the, the rock oyster doesn't mind coming out yep. you know as the tide goes up yeah and down you're starting to get some some mixed beds on the sort of fringe of those those two areas mm-hmm. um and the pacific oyster is a non-native species so um it has spread and you've got these sort of new wild populations springing up that shouldn't technically be there mm-hmm. and could be displacing or outcompeting other species. Um, something like a mussel bed could quite easily be, be overtaken by Pacific oysters. Um, but, but yeah, fortunately for us, the native oyster is in that deeper water, slightly out of reach. I don't know if you're the right person to ask this, but do they taste different? Um, <laughs> so I, I, ha- I have tried each of them um, and they, they do taste different. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, If you ask... The oystermen here, they'll definitely say the native oyster is the nicer of Far the two. Superior for um, yeah, it's okay. it's more of a sort of meaty texture rather than um, I'm not going to describe the Pacific oyster, but I'm sure most people know what a what an oyster texture is like. Um, right, okay, but, but the native ones yeah, are a bit firmer. Right, okay. So getting back to the kind of the nature side of stuff, then as as you're building up this the the, the kind of new reefs of the um, the oyster beds. What else does that bring in? Does that actually have an impact on the the wider environment? Are you seeing other species come in? Yeah, so it has it has a huge impact. Um, if you have just your your standard seabed before we start doing this, this reef deployment is generally where we work sort of quite flat, uniform, not much structure or, or texture there. Um, and by adding this material and having oysters on on there you're building up this sort of complex 3d matrix it's it's like a like a sort of mini coral reef but with oysters Um, and giving sort of little spaces and gaps and areas within the oysters between the oysters between the bits of shell and rock um, provide shelter for all manner of of small marine life your little crabs and shrimps and amphipods all come and live in those little cracks i'm not familiar with an amphipod what's an amphipod it's it's like a mini mini shrimp um, okay. sort of really really tiny okay. um, but they're, they're sort of the base of a lot of the, the food chains um, and that, that then draws in other species as well so bigger fish will come in to start feeding on right. on all this sort of base level food that's there and you're actually able to monitor this I mean how do you how do you know this is going on yeah so as part of the project um, we've been been going out and monitoring um, the deployment um, the sort of culture that we've put down looking at species richness and species abundance so how many species there are what different types of species there are um, and how that's changed from what was there before and also comparing it with areas that we haven't done any work on so having a a control area so we can actually conclusively say what we're seeing is because of that material we've put down and and is it is it heading in the right direction are you pleased with what you're seeing yeah so i mean within the first year we'd started to see an increase in the number of species there and the number of animals there so it was certainly having an immediate impact it's a it's a slow long process you know as I said, a, a good few years for an oyster to grow mm-hmm. um to five centimeters so it's going to take a long time before we've got self-sustaining populations of oysters in this sort of really rich um biodiverse area 
but we think and hope it's heading in the right direction okay and when will you know then that it has been fully successful i guess you just keep monitoring it and come back in i'll come back in 20 years time and see how it's gone on and that yeah. kind of thing yeah exactly that so we we just keep monitoring it keep doing the work um keeping tabs on how everything's going um monitoring not just the immediate area we're working in but also the wider area so we, we work with um other partners that ensure fisheries and conservation authority to go out and monitor oyster stocks across the whole of the marine conservation zone mm-hmm. um, to see a how they're doing everywhere but b whether there's a sort of spillover effect from the area we're actively restoring um, and as i said we're working with the fishing industry as well um, so the hope is and the, the plan is that in that wider area from the spillover effect it will then enable that small scale sort of sustainable fishery to reopen um, and that's enshrined in um, the IFCA's bylaws now so it's okay. um, it will allow that once the stocks have sufficiently recovered. Because obviously you know in, in Kent and, and as Kent Wildlife Trust we keep a close eye on everything that's going on in the, the Thames and Whitstable is kind of the focus of the, the oyster industry in Kent. Um, are there lessons going to be learned from what you're doing here that can be applied in other fisheries about the place is that part of the project yeah absolutely so we are um, actively encouraging and supporting restoration projects around the uk Um, we're part of a number of projects Um, we have another project called the wild oysters project Mm -hmm. which is um, setting up restoration hubs up in the northeast of england and north wales we have another site down in the solent setting up um, new oyster reefs Mm -hmm. Um, but we're also sharing all of our lessons learned here from essex and these other sites um, with other restoration practitioners. Um, so actually in a couple of weeks we have a conference, um, it's called the um, Native Oyster Restoration Alliance, and this is bringing together restoration practitioners, industry partners, um, regulators from all over Europe, um, bringing everyone together, everyone shares their experiences, the work they've done, the lessons they've learned, what went well, what didn't go well, mm-hmm. which is just as important, yeah. um, and just sort of really try and learn from each other, share that knowledge, um, and there's an, another thing we've produced is um, restoration handbooks. So how-to guides on um, the restoration process, both the seabed side of things, um, engagement side of things, and um, what we have called native oyster nurseries, which okay. is another sort of tool we use. So we've got a marine conservation area here, which actively is protecting that, um, but that's very localised. How is the water being impacted by the wider issues like water quality the actual water that's getting into the system and coming down here and climate change you're starting to see differences in water temperature and stuff is that actually impacting what's going on with the oysters so native oysters are um temperature dependent when it comes to their reproducing um so you need to reach a certain temperature before they'll spawn Mm. um so you have to carefully monitor how any changes in temperature of the water will affect them also things like changes in ph um the salinity level of of the water um all of these different things that will affect the um the way that an oyster works and mm-hmm. its own sort of internal systems whether or not it'll even survive so we we've had days in the last couple of years that have hit you know well over 35 40 degrees even which is crazy uh has that have you noticed that having an impact on the oyster bed it's something that um, luckily, our area is subtidal in quite deep water, mm-hmm. um, sort of 10-ish metres, so it's it's less impacted than somewhere that's in sort of shallow water. A lot of the places where the uh, oyster industry have beds is much shallower water. Um, there were 
big freezing events in the past. I believe 1960s is a huge freezing event here, which killed you know, a lot of oysters. Yeah. Um, and the, the exact same happens if it's, if it's too hot. It, it stresses the oysters out um, and it, it causes, well, yeah, it can cause them to die. Oh, that's okay. And as a final thought, why do you like oysters? Well, how did you become an oyster man? I kind of fell into oysters. Um, so I, I studied marine biology at university, um, got interested in fisheries and aquaculture, um, and studied Pacific oysters in, in Southampton Water. Mm-hmm. Um, I then went and worked in, in aquaculture, mussel farming for a couple of years, right. um, and sort of developed more and more interest in shellfish and what's the what what excites you about shellfish then i i just think they're they're brilliant they're they're a species but they're also often a habitat as well and it's this the sort of base layer of everything that we have in the ocean they obviously they have so many benefits that we've spoken about already you know the water filtration the biodiversity increases um they're just a really fascinating little animal. You, they're not much to look at, but actually the more you dig down into them, the more interesting they become, and the more you see they actually support all manner of marine life and are so integral to the health of our ocean. Well, it's great to have a chat with somebody who's genuinely passionate about a thing that lots of people probably don't think about too much. But they are amazing little creatures. I'm looking forward to... Uh, um actually seeing more and more native oysters in our waters years go ahead so matt thanks ever so much for your time it's been great to find out about the project no problem great to meet you matt utley from the blue marine foundation there and if you want to find out more about the work that they do then take a look at bluemarinefoundation.com they are doing some amazing stuff around the world working to try and protect at least 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. All good stuff. And the uh, Enori project, the Essex Native Oyster Reintroduction Initiative, is of course partnered with the Essex Wildlife Trust. And they've also obviously got loads of stuff going on all along that coastline. Many thanks to them for their help on the day. The marine conservation area itself covers all of the Blackwater, the Colne, the Crouch and the Roach River estuaries. And if you like a bleak, windswept marshland filled with the sound of seabirds, and I do, because I grew up on the edge of the Denji marshes and misspent my youth sailing dinghies on the crouch, then I can tell you it really is a place well worth visiting. Go out to Brightlingsea, take a look for yourself, it's lovely. Now, talking of bleak, windswept landscapes filled with seabirds, Dungeness. <laughs> it's an extraordinary place of many contradictions, squeezed in between an airport, a nuclear power station, uh, an MOD live firing range, and it's home to the UK's only desert. But it is also jam-packed with biodiversity. It's a refuge for dozens of endangered plants and insects, and perhaps most spectacularly with birds. I met up with Craig Edwards, who's the RSPB warden at Dungeness, responsible for some thousand hectares, two and a half thousand acres of shingle, marsh and wetland. Their big project at the moment involves the creation of a series of new islands in the lakes that were originally gravel pits dug out for aggregates in order to create more safe havens for endangered seabirds and migrating birds. (laughs) 
I think seabirds are kind of in a perilous state at the minute, not just um, because of avian flu kind of really hitting these colonies hard, um, but this kind of infrastructure and human kind of impacts are hitting them as well. So uh, for us, having a bigger colony or more room for them to nest is going to spread them out a little bit more to make them safer from impacts of things like the avian flu, um, but also um, opportunities for those colonies to expand. Okay, and so you're you're physically building islands, are you in the lakes? Uh, yes, we've done some last year where we had kind of islands that were too low. Climate change is hitting us quite hard. Water levels are increasing each year, or kind of being a lot more extreme. Um, so we need to raise some of these islands up a little bit where they are underwater at the wrong time of year in the breeding season. And uh, the big project that we're undertaking, there is nothing there at the minute. So we are looking to uh, create islands from um, what we can find around. Okay. And what what kind of species are you actually seeing down here? What should we be keeping an eye out for? Uh, I think the island work will uh, definitely benefit some of our gull species. So we're hoping uh, black-headed gulls, herring gulls, lesser blackback, greater blackback gulls, common tern. Um, as well that's kind of a real species that we want to see back here on the reserve again um, and as well as it's roosting habitat for some of the wildfowl uh, that we get here in the winter so uh, tufted duck um, teal uh, widgeon uh, as well and then we have other species that will benef- benefit from the work that we're doing um, such as the medicinal leech and um, our marshmallow moth that we now have on the reserve. Sorry the medicinal leech and marshmallow moth? Yes yeah some of our specialisms that we have they're very very kind of localised uh, we think we've got about 50% of the UK population for medicinal leech on the reserve uh, and marshmallow moth has started to recolonise uh, the kind of they're only found in kind of Kent and East Sussex uh, and we think we've kind of got about 5% potentially of the population here okay I'm, I'm i've never seen a marshmallow moth i've got probably completely the wrong <laughs> mental image what does a marshmallow moth look like to be honest they aren't that uh, amazing to look at they are kind of a bit brown and fluffy they don't look like a marshmallow or the marshmallow man from ghostbusters right, at all. So, okay. um they are remar- unremarkable in how they look but they are they feed on the marshmallow plant mm-hmm. uh, which only grows in a few places and that's one of the things that people don't necessarily twig is that Dungeness, you know, it's sort of flat and kind of a bit bleak and a bit windswept. It's actually one of the most biodiverse places in the whole of the UK. Absolutely, yeah. There are lots of little microhabitats around the reserve. Uh, and actually, because some of it's really undisturbed as well, um, yeah, there's lots of different things that people can see. And actually, birds only make up. 10% of the species that you'll find here uh, and that's what most people come down to look for but actually we have a third of the UK's plants you know we have over 2,000 species of invertebrate um, there's just so much here to look at that perhaps people might not even realise. So you create a space that's good for the birds that accidentally create spaces that's brilliant for everything else uh it, it, yeah definitely i think where the land has been quarried i think a lot of things have moved in uh, in the past and it's now recovering but we just need to kind of give it a little bit more of a boost um just to, to kind of help it get through this kind of uh kind of pressures that we've got with climate change at the minute all right well let's go and have a look and see what we can find So Craig, we're we're looking out across a, a lake here. Are these some of your artificial islands that we can see in front of us here? Yes, so these are uh, four islands that were created uh, last 
autumn uh, in low water levels we managed to get out here and create some new islands that are going to be really close to one of our new uh, our new hide and they're quite small i mean you know you couldn't it's not a desert island that a human could live on is it they're, they're quite little patches of of land that are sticking out that's enough is it yeah i think uh, a lot of these seabirds they don't need huge amounts of room uh, i think sometimes having having a, a variety of highland sizes is really kind of key because sometimes you can get uh, species like common tern are very colonial you'll get a lot of them nest in a very small space and other times you'll get things like herring gulls will be quite territorial so you might get one per island so having a variety of bigger islands and smaller islands is is always quite kind of crucial i think and there's some uh well, it looks like a swimming lane you've got a, a, a rope going around the islands with lots of little floats on it what, what's that there for uh, that is our anti-predator floating fence um so this design has come from denmark um that we have modified and it's been used on a couple of other rspb reserves as well so in, in essence it's a floating line that sits in the water uh, to deter mammalian kind of entry onto the island. So, okay, what does mammalian entry mean? Who's <laughs> who are you keeping off? Uh, foxes and badgers uh, are the main. Uh, if they get onto islands, they can devastate colonies. So, if badgers. I mean, foxes. I can get. But you know, we know fo- if a fox gets into the hen house and it eats all the eggs just for fun. But badgers are an issue. Yeah, badgers. They will go for a swim. There is evidence on RSPB reserves that they will swim through ditches and across water. We've had evidence on these islands um, before we uh, raised them up that they were uh, entering and kind of getting across onto their islands. And they eat the baby birds today, is that what they're after? They'll be after the nests, they, they love eggs, so right. they will, they'll be after the nests and whatever they can get hold of really. Okay, so this floating line, that's enough to keep them off, is it? Yeah, the, the idea behind it is that they, there's not enough purchase for them to, to climb over it. Um, and they don't like most of them at the time they don't like putting their heads underwater they have to be quite desperate so right. uh, unless they know there's food on the other side which they won't do they, they sh- there shouldn't be a need to get underneath it. and they can't get tangled up in it no that is a single line with floats on so there's nothing to get tangled on right okay and just looking out across here i mean it's the the, the lake itself is a beautiful scene you are kind of do- dominated by a big nuclear power station in the background here down at Dungeness. Does that cause problems for you at all? You know, with the, with all the, uh, the the pylons and the cables and everything else that they, that happens over on the EDF site. Um, we've not noticed anything. I mean, the only thing that we have picked up on surveys is that it, it, there's a lot of light at night time, um, so we can you can walk out there and you don't need a torch. Uh, there's a lot of artificial light uh, which could deter some species that used to nest here from nesting here like stone curlew the habitat out there is perfect for them but it's so light i don't think there's an opportunity for that you know they're visible so i think if that light wasn't there there'd be opportunities for them to potentially but yeah whilst it's so light i think that they're too visible to predators right okay but other than that it doesn't cause a problem no the uh to be honest the ed we work quite well with uh edf in the past on some some of our projects on things like our sussex emerald moth project which is only found on dungeness peninsula uh, we work well with them on those projects to try and to um, preserve them so we got on well with them there and actually the power station there's a lot of sea defense work associated with that and it's helping to protect this part of the reserve as well the whole dungeness peninsula wants to move uh, and because we're kind of sat there between EDF and we have the MOD at LID all saying, no, we don't want to lose any land, actually it's helping to protect this kind of little haven for wildlife. Well, otherwise the sea would kind of wash it away, uh, move it around the corner kind of thing. Yeah, the, the west, the kind of the, what we call the West Bay, the, the southern part of the peninsula is trying to, is eroding away. We are seeing that. 
um, and it is building to the east. Um, so it, it, as a, a coastal feature, it, it naturally wants to move. And as humans, we're trying, well, we are stopping that. Fascinating. Right, let's wander on. Well, Craig, this is out the breeze. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's very sheltered in here. We're in the Christmas Dell hide. Who's who's Christmas Dell? Uh, I think it was named after a location that was here before they uh, they quarried these uh, lakes in front of us. So this hide, I mean, this is pretty much brand new, isn't it? Uh, no, actually, this is one of our oldest hides. It was built in 1990. But wow, it's a really good nick. <laughs> uh, well, we've completely renovated it this summer. Uh, mm. Completely reclad it and and um, done all the, we done all the windows and yeah. Oh, okay. so it's, it's effectively a new hide, but in a, in this old frame. Right. Okay. It's like triggers triggers broom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So as I look out the, the the hide window here, I can see a lot of reed. I can see, well, I can see a power station in the background, but mainly what I can see is water and reeds going off into the distance. Give me a bit more of a kind of a, a naturalist side of what we're actually looking at here. Uh, well, from my perspective, uh, we're looking, this is a series of lakes, which is about 22 hectares. So it's not a small kind of series of lakes. And they have these narrow causeways across them. These causeways were once out of the water but now they're kind of underwater for most of the time with just reed kind of popping out but um and i can see i think it's a cormorant swimming around in the lake and yeah. diving yeah i think we've got cormorants out there i think it might be an egret or something out on that island as well it's very quiet which is why we want to do the project work over here so what what does the project work involve what are you doing so we're looking at um these causeways that are out here in front of us with the reed growing along them um what we'd like to do is to use that shallow area, that shallow kind of area where that is, to create island work. So, reduce the quantity of shallow water, but to create areas that are out of the water. We know that the surrounding water, where there is, there is no reed, it drops between ten and thirteen meters quite sharply. So, wow. it's uh, very, very deep, very quickly. So, um, this this is all quarried, wasn't it? This has all been yeah. quarried out for aggregate. That's why there's standing water here at all. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, this is all all quarried. Uh, I think back in the eighties. Um, so, yeah, they had these causeways out here at the time, but they aren't because of climate change and kind of increased water levels and erosion that comes through these storm events. Uh, they have kind of they're underwater for most of the year, so they aren't really delivering anything. Um, this area should be as busy as our other lakes in terms of for wildfowl uh, and wildlife, but it just isn't. So um, this project will create well, on this lake in particular about. 12 islands that will hopefully be used by uh, seabirds such as herring gull, uh, common tern, black-headed gull. I can see a few birds in, in here at the moment. There's some more hen. I think a grebe. Did I say a grebe? Yeah, there we are. there's, there's, a, there's a, a pair of great kissed grebe and some, and some coot out there. Um, and to be honest, that habitat isn't going to change. There will still be the deep water that they will use, but we want to make more out of the shallow habitat. So, um, yeah, it will improve things for the, for the goals uh, and the turns, but it will also um, kind of create a kind of more shallow shingle kind of bare habitat with the warmer water would be better for some of the other wildlife as well. And the whole area, because, because it is such a huge space, mainly shingle, as you said, under, yeah. underfoot, 
what kind of other wildlife are you actually seeing about the place? If we just talk about the birds for a moment, have you got raptors down here? Yeah, to be honest, it's one of it's one of the best places to see raptors. Um, we have marsh harriers that now breed uh, annually on the reserve since two thousand and nine. Um, we'll get daily buzzard sightings as they spread through. Um, we have kestrels, sparrowhawks, um, we have barn owls that nest on site as well. In the summer, we're quite good for hobbies. Uh, this time of year, we'll get kind of passage ospreys, uh, red kite. Um, there's a, even a uh, pallid harrier been seen in the last couple of days as well. So, uh, and we'll get merlin. There's more kind of merlin in the autumn as well. So it's a fantastic place. Do you, do you quite like your job? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into this in the first place? Um, I mean, my, well, my background is my parents used to bring me down here when I was a child, so I've always loved Dungeness. Um, and then uh, as soon as I left um, kind of school, I started volunteering um, with a local conservation organisation. That developed into a kind of a passion that then led to degrees and um, kind of college university before starting out on the Farne Islands uh, in Northumberland. And then I kind of came back and landed here really okay so this this really is your manor yeah so i've known it for well yeah for quite a long time so yeah it's nice to be able to kind of keep improving things really and on that note because we're obviously everybody's deeply concerned about the state of the environment you're intimately working on the land down here all the time are you how are you feeling about things in general terms are you optimistic for the future we are we trying to push in the right directions um, I think as as an organisation and as a reserve, we're definitely pushing in the right way. We are trying to do the right things. I think we just, yeah, I think we, yeah, a more joined up approach with, is always going to be. Uh, we're going to need to do something different to to change the kind of the tide that's kind of kind of setting in with the state of nature. Mm. So, partly optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> partly optimistic. I can I can sense a sort of like a, a degree of concern there. There's definitely, as you say, you could, you've got to look at the state of nature. Uh, you know, one in six species is is under threat of extinction. You can't sit here and and be comfortable. Um, I mean, within my within my power, I can do as much as we can to try and get this reserve back up and functioning as it as it can do. You know, try and convert as much habitat as we can. So. I can sit there and, and, and sleep easy, sitting there going, we've done as much as, we po- as, as I possibly can, um, everything within my power. Well, Craig, that was great. We're, we're sort of back around where we started, but we're actually by another one of the lakes. Which lake is this? Uh, this one's Burroughs Pit. This is our largest one. Now, looking out across the lake here, You've got an island that was created, what, in 2017? And it's absolutely heaving with gulls. Blackback gulls, are they out there? Yeah, there was a, there's greater blackback gulls, herring gulls, and then the one next door is got, got full of lapwing. So that island, that, that little patch there, is doing exactly what you want it to. Yeah, exactly. It's thanks to the hard work of the volunteers that we have here, really, to help clear these islands each kind of early autumn to, um, to kind of create that habitat that they, these birds can feel safe to, to roost on. So as, we, as we've walked around, I mean, it's been quite easy for us to, to walk around. I know you've actually done quite a lot of work, haven't you, on, on making sure it's as 
accessible as possible you actually you want people to come and visit that's it yeah i mean we've done a lot of work uh, since covid to try and uh, make it more appealing for more people um i mean nature needs more people to kind of to to buy into it and that's what we want to do with dungeness is just to people to come here and go wow this is amazing I really want to care about it and so by having a range of viewing structures um not just not just hides then there's something for everyone where you don't have to go in and you know it's a it's quite an intimidating place a hide at times you know especially if you've got kids and you want to explore so having a like a nice open kind of viewing platform where you can see across the lake and you can still kind of absorb the energy and the and the wildlife and yeah it's just yeah hopefully more appealing for, for more people to come and give it and, a go. And the fact that it's kind of squeezed in between a, a, an airport and a nuclear power station, <laughs> it doesn't, that doesn't sound like it should be a great place for a wilderness, but it really is. It's just a lovely spot to come to. It is. I say it's one of the most biodiverse places uh, in the country and there's something for everybody. If you're into your birds, if you're into your landscapes, uh, if you're into just escaping from almost like a reality, um, or you say whatever kind of uh, family group you're into in terms of insects or invertebrates, bumblebees, birds, dragonflies, there's something for everyone. Oh, that's a great spot. Craig, great to meet you. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Craig Edwards from the RSPB there. Now, we're almost at the end of the podcast for this episode. Time's flown, hasn't it? Thank you for making it this far. You are the best. Uh, What would be brilliantly useful is if you could like and subscribe the podcast and most importantly, tell people about it either by word of mouth or sharing links through your socials. The more listeners that we have, the more ambitious we can be in getting out and seeing firsthand all of the brilliant projects that are going on to protect and enhance our fragile natural world. So tell people about it. Great, thank you. Uh, Talking of which... Here is the news. A pair of red-billed chuffs have been spotted at Dover Castle. The birds had been uh, reintroduced to the chalk grasslands above Dover this summer for the first time in over 200 years, and they are obviously starting to settle in and literally spread their wings. English Heritage staff at Dover Castle took a brilliant picture of a pair sitting on a window ledge looking in through the glass to see what's going on inside. It's been described as a milestone moment and shows that the years of hard work alongside local landowners to make sure that the countryside is suitable for them to live and hopefully breed in is actually working. Huzzah! Artomyces pixidatus. No, not an obscure Roman general, but an even rarer form of fungus in the UK. It's also known as Candelabra coral, and it's been spotted growing from a tree stump in Addington in Kent. It's only the 12th time it's ever been recorded in the UK, and it really is a beautiful thing. It looks remarkably like, uh, well, a candelabra coral. Medway-based ecologist Rihanna Dix spotted it on a fungus foray with the London Fungus Network. It's more usually found in Canada and northeastern India. So how it's ended up just off the M20 is a bit of a mystery. And a big shout out to David Attenborough, whose latest astonishing wildlife series, Planet Earth 3, has recently come to our screens, I recommend. So David has been around the world any number of times in pursuit of capturing shots of rare and unusual wildlife and could have chosen literally anywhere to open this series and actually chose 
a wildflower meadow in Kent. It is a very special wildflower meadow. It, it's the one that Charles Darwin used to ramble through from his house at Down. And Down Bank Nature Reserve is now owned by Kent Wildlife Trust. And it's home to an abundance of species, including pyramid and bee orchids, the green hair streak butterfly, the brown argus butterfly and wild cherry. Now, executive producer Mike Gunton said, when we filmed it, the meadow was alive with bees and insects, grasshoppers were singing out their melodies all around us, and there was an abundance of butterflies floating on the warm air. Both David and I said it was a truly magical moment and gave me hope that if we can protect and restore and allow nature to work its miracles, then future generations will be able to experience that magic for many years to come. And that feels like a very satisfying note to finish on. I'm Rob Smith. Talk on the Wild Side is a Wild Rover media production for Kent Wildlife Trust. And until next time, please do go wild in the country. <laughs>